This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. My paper is entitled, The Cross as the Revelation of Divine Life, according to Gregory the Great. St. Gregory the Great, Bishop of Rome from 590 to 604, is recognized today for his energies as a civil administrator, his political vigor, his missionary initiative, and of course, his spiritual instruction. He is also known for not having wanted to be Pope. In the Roman villa that he and his mother had converted into a monastery, one may still see the small alcove in which, it is said, he concealed himself when the crowds arrived to carry him off to the cathedral at the Lateran. During the first months of his papacy, Gregory wrote to the emperor's sister Theoctista, lamenting, I have lost the profound joys of my quiet peace. I seem to have risen externally while falling internally, and I deplore my expulsion from the face of my creator. Gregory's childhood had been riven by violence, plague, and fear. His family were refugees when Rome was attacked by the Goths. Now, decades later, his city threatened by another Germanic tribe, he wrote, I am made bishop not of the Romans, but of the Lombards, whose treaties are broadswords and whose favor is vengeance. Abandoned by the far-off emperor, Gregory found himself compelled to assume the duties not only of a spiritual shepherd, but also of a civil magistrate, overseeing the provisioning, social welfare, and even the military defense of Rome. Yet Gregory longed for other things. His writings are defined especially by their contemplative orientation, their striving from hearing to seeing. Reading scripture, he moves from text to reality. In prayer, he flies from discursive thought toward intuitive apprehension, and at the highest peak, rises from faith to vision. Contemplative vision, the peak of prayer, is the simple, intuitive vision, wordless and imageless of God. Not produced by the activity of the human mind, it results from divine action. It is an encounter with the living God. Gregory teaches that contemplative ascent is attainable universally. Indeed, he writes, by every station of life among the faithful. His conviction that this was so flowed from his own deep reflection on the life of the Trinity, which he found revealed especially in the cross. And this is what I will discuss today. We know that we shall be like him, writes the first letter of John, for we shall see him as he is. Likeness to God is both the consequence and the basis for receiving the vision of him in the Christian tradition. Gregory, the shepherd of Rome, looks to Christ, the good shepherd, when he writes, he who is good, not from some accidental gift, but essentially, says, I am the good shepherd. And he adds the form of this same goodness, which we are to imitate, saying, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He did what he taught, and he showed what he commanded. In his book of pastoral rule, Gregory describes what it looks like to lay down one's life for the sheep. It is by compassion for one's neighbor that one's love and vision ascend to God. Gregory writes, Christ, the truth himself, 
assuming our human nature and engaging in prayer on the mountaintop and working miracles down in the towns gave us a way of imitation that good rulers must follow. Although in contemplation they strive already after the highest things, yet by compassionating, they ought to be entwined in the needs of the infirm. For charity surges to great heights when it is compassionately drawn down to the lowly needs of neighbors. And the more it descends to the infirm, the mightier is its reach to the highest things. <clears throat> Holding thus that the breadth in, of uh, practice in compassion redounds to greater height in contemplation. Gregory, Gregory declares succinctly in the homilies on Ezekiel, he who for his own sake flies to heavenly desire through contemplation, still, however, sweats over temporal matters for the advancement and advantage of his neighbors. Now, given Christ's own compassion, Gregory's arguments are perhaps unsurprising to us. But for the theological tradition that Gregory had received, Christ's own contemplation on the mountain was seen as attained largely in spite of, rather than through his life amidst the crowds. It was something for the God-man, but not perhaps for the ordinary man. The question was not whether one might be holy in the world. Late antique Christianity abounds with holy men and women that set their wider communities in order. We find them in Athanasius's life of Anthony, in Sulpicius's life of St. Martin, Gregory's own life of Benedict in his dialogues, and the example of many a Byzantine bishop. However, one observes in these cases a tension, both one of life and one of theology. While the practice of such holy men and women would indicate that the vision of God can be a regular feature of life in the world, there is, especially in the pre-Gregorian West, <clears throat> a decided lack of theological development concerning how this might be so. In particular, there was no theological account of how, apart from the monastic retreat, one might build toward and sustain that interior peak of love that was considered to be the immediate basis for seeing God. Just as a student's apprehension of some knotty problem in organic chemistry will be disrupted by a dalliance with Candy Crush Saga or a good scroll through the old Instagram feed, so too the interior quiet and conformity to God that one needs in order to see him are disrupted by the world's conflict fraught and fragmentary bustling. This is why Gregory himself felt expelled from God's face when he was drawn into temporal affairs as Pope and de facto governor of Rome. Taking as our point of departure Gregory's words about the Good Shepherd, I propose three points. <clears throat> First, Gregory learned from his beloved predecessor, Augustine of Hippo, theological predecessor, not pontifical. He learned from his beloved predecessor, Augustine of Hippo, who located our imitation of God's goodness in our mercy, our loving the neighbor in order to lift the neighbor toward life in God. In likening the Christian to God's own love for humankind coming from his goodness, mercy prepares for the vision of him. However, Augustine also sees the world's activity as eroding our interior restfulness, and so he expects this vision not usually in this life, but only in the next. Second, 
For Augustine, this mercy can, when useful, involve a shared affection or understanding in which the Christian might more effectively, through friendship, lift the neighbor to God. Third, Gregory develops Augustine's teaching in light of Christ's cross, which Gregory sees as the ultimate expression of divine love and even a revelation of the Trinitarian life. Transforming Augustine's teaching, Gregory makes shared affection essential to the neighborly love that, now seen as translating humanly the embrace of father and son, can be the direct and immediate basis for seeing him even in this tumultuous life. Gregory's development of Augustinian thought thus makes contemplative vision a concomitant element of compassionate activity in the torn world of the post-imperial West. So first, Augustine on mercy's likeness to the divine goodness. Augustine writes, the Lord himself declared, blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Therefore, let us hold earthly beauties cheap and choose him for our love. And by this love, so cleanse our hearts through faith that the vision of God may find our hearts already purified. Such advice is common in the broad tradition of late antique Christianity. Purity of love was seen as having a particular likeness to God's own love, a likeness prerequisite to seeing him. And yet, the question of how this love resembles God somewhat determines how one goes about practicing purity of heart. John Cashin, who lived from 360 to 435, reflects often on purity of heart in his conferences, which record the teaching of the Egyptian desert ascetics. Following Christ's prayer for unity in John chapter 17, Cashin draws his description of pure love from the union of the Father and Son in the simple divine nature. In the 10th conference, the Egyptian Abba Isaac explains that only a ceaseless human love and a single thought of God can imitate the divine love that flows to humans from the divine unity. Cashin has just recounted to Isaac how it was recently explained to another Abba that the divine majesty is quote, immeasurable, incomprehensible, and invisible, because his nature is incorporeal, uncomposed, and simple, and thus it cannot be apprehended by the eyes or seized by the mind, end quote. Abba Isaac affirms God's simplicity and then emphasizes that only those who are properly instructed concerning the divine nature can attain to the pure form of prayer that is free of any illusion of corporeal multiplicity. In other words, we must get beyond bodies to see God. And the more we think of him in fragmentary terms, the less we will be prepared to receive him. So to define this pure prayer, Isaac describes how God's own pure and indissoluble love for the Christian soul comes forth from God's simple unity the unity which the Father has now with the Son and which the Son has with the Father. For Christ himself prayed in John chapter 17 that they may be one as we are one. And so, in contemplative vision, the undivided love that flows from their simple unity is carried over into our understanding and our mind. 
To reach this vision, Isaac teaches, the soul must be perfected in a love like God's love. All the yearnings of the heart must become a single and continuous prayer so that whatever we understand may be God. This is the prayer of the pure heart that Abba Moses in another conference describes as perfect and utterly clean, unsullied by any passion. Now this simple unity of pure love is supported practically in life by Cashin's ideal of solitary life in the undisturbed desert. To be sure, he does not exclude one's assistance toward the neighbor. One has not reached the desert in order to flee other human beings, but only to flee disturbance. In the first place, as Abba John cautions, excellence in love of neighbor must be practiced inwardly and outwardly before one departs from the monastery for the solitary desert life. Nor, having reached the desert, may the hermit refuse the call of the neighbor in need. However, it is stipulated, for those who have advanced to the solitary life, neighborly action is a contingent necessity imposed by the fall. It is commanded by the loving Lord and requisite to the fullness of love. But even so, it is not intrinsic to perfect love that one be with one's neighbor. And being with the neighbor and exercising care for them can even impede or degrade the progress of contemplation. We can appreciate then why the desert father Abba Isaac interprets Christ's activities rather differently than Will Gregory the Great centuries later. He teaches that Jesus entered the villages because he himself did not need the support of withdrawal from the world. But he prayed on the mountain alone to teach by example that, quote, if we too wish to address God with purity and integrity of heart, we likewise must draw apart from the crowd and spiritually and physically go to the lofty mountain of solitude, end quote. Now, Augustine chooses a different metaphysical starting point, the goodness of God from which his mercy comes, rather than the simplicity of God from which his unity comes. And so Augustine reaches different practical prescriptions for how to grow in a love like God. To define the pure heart's likeness to God, Augustine looks to the object of the heart's love, God's essential goodness. For, as Augustine writes, each one is such as is his love. By the only begotten himself, he calls us to his own likeness. All this takes place by the great goodness of God, which goodness we are commanded to imitate if we wish to be his children. Embracing and imitating God's goodness, then, one is likened to that goodness. And being likened to his goodness, one is ready to see him. What, however, is the path into conformity with God's goodness. To discover the Christian life of goodness, Augustine, like Cassian, looks to God's life. However, he draws not on a direct analysis of God's love within the Trinity, as Cassian did, but from the outward manifestation in time of God's love in the human life of Christ incarnate. For it is through Jesus that God reveals himself to us. Augustine turns to Christ's human life because that is where God has seen fit to teach us. The sin-darkened heart cannot grasp the word directly, 
Therefore, Augustine tells us, God prepared the word by his human life to be seen by the eyes of flesh as well. By becoming incarnate, God the word translated his own divine life into his own human life. Somewhat as Augustine says, as when we talk, our thought takes on the form of a spoken utterance. Christ's example of how to live translated the divine life in no other mode than the human one. By conforming themselves to this translation, Christians will advance on a way that Augustine says is traveled by the affections, a voyage unto likeness with God by which their minds will be able to be purified, enabling them to see his light and cling to it when it is perceived. Christ's commands then tell us how to imitate God's goodness. Therefore, the purifying way of the affections is especially the love of God and neighbor. Christ's example shows us that this love takes the form of mercy, like the Latin word for Augustine, misericordia. Referencing the parable of the Good Samaritan, Augustine exclaims, uh, explains, rather, quote, if anyone is rightly to be called our neighbor, either to whom the, dirty, the duty of misericordia I'm sorry. <laughs> when we are transcending beyond words, words begin to break down as we entertain divine things. This is especially the case when one has arisen early to complete one's favor. <clears throat> Referencing the Good Samaritan, Augustine explains, if anyone is rightly to be called our neighbor, either to whom the duty of mercy is to be extended, or by whom it is to be extended by us. It clearly follows that our Lord and God himself wish to be called our neighbor. For Lord Jesus Christ indicates himself as the one who came to the help of the, Samar of the Samaritan, not of the Samaritan, of the man afflicted by robbers lying half dead on the road. Jesus was the Samaritan, not the, not the beaten man. So Christ's human mercy echoes his divine love for humankind, issuing from his essential character as good. So Augustine can write, God renders mercy to us on account of his goodness. God needs no good from humanity, but loves humankind for our benefit and not his, so that we may enjoy him forever. For Augustine, then, misericordia is the outward expression of that love by which God wills to gather even fallen humanity into his eternal perfection, a union in God's life in common a direct contemplation of God the Father. Misericordia is the content of the vision that we will see in heaven. God's ingathering love originates in his divine goodness and flows out into history as mercy in that it communicates God's goodness to others. And by this communication, it draws human beings back into the inner life of love that they have forsaken. The love of the pure heart then desires and loves God for the sake of his goodness. But simultaneously, and also for the sake of that goodness, the pure heart loves the neighbor, even the enemy, so as to desire and love that neighbor's share in the goodness of God and the life of the Trinity. By such a love of God and neighbor, the love that goes forth from God's goodness is returned in echo, as it were, to him by us. Quite different than Cassian, then, Augustine's practice of purifying the heart and his practice of godlike love does not tend toward withdrawal from the world. Much less does Augustine idealize self-alienation from all human community. 
as the good God has mercy that humanity may enjoy him, so Augustine writes, quote, we have mercy on each other again so that we may all enjoy him, end quote. This mercy is lived best within a community of faith and love, even amidst a worldly society. This is Augustine's path to the vision of God. To the second point, Augustine on mercy as sometimes compassionate. For Augustine, one practices mercy in friendship, in forgiveness, almsgiving, preaching, and prayer, the general concourse of human relations in godly love. The earthly Christian life strives not for a simple love focused exclusively on the thought of God, but rather for a focusing of loves by referring them all to God. Further distancing himself from Cassian's radically untroubled love, Augustine introduces a note of empathy, even of co-suffering to his account of mercy. For misericordia means wretched heartedness. Thus, Augustine can say that when Christ, by his incarnation, came to the help of the man lying half dead on the road, he took pity on us. Here are the seeds of Gregory's teaching on compassion. What does Augustine's merciful pity look like in practice? Whereas the Stoic tradition shunned any share in the neighbor's suffering as a threat to the interior unity of one's heart, Augustine saw it as a useful act of self-extension in love to empathize with others. In his Confessions, written around the year 400, analyzing the word misericordia, Augustine writes, now, if one suffers in one's own person, it is the custom to call this miseria. But when one suffers with another, then it is called misericordia. Yet over a decade earlier, in 388, a more youthful and stoically inclined Augustine had wished to exclude co-suffering from the essence of misericordia. There he writes that God is wretched hearted or merciful toward his creatures in that he wills their good for a full hearted involvement in their lives, but God suffers no painful feeling in result. If God himself can be misericors without misery, compassionate without passion, then human beings too can be best called misericors when they humanely supply the things required for warding off evils and distresses of others. The motive, not the affections, are the key. True, Augustine admits, the usual sense of misericordia refers to whatever makes wretched miseru the heart of the one co-suffering another's ill. However, the wise, he writes, are misericors in their acts of charity by alleviating others' sufferings according to the duty of goodness. They need feel no pain to be motivated, and they even act free of miseria. Their misericordia comes forth from their goodness, just as God's comes forth from his. That precisely wherein all such acts can be considered merciful, then, is not co-suffering, but rather the willing of the neighbor's good. It's not that Augustine shuns suffering. He just does not see it as consequent. He's, he does not shun suffering, but rather he sees it as a consequence rather than as an essential ingredient in one's merciful involvement in the neighbor's life. However, in the year 406, just a few years after writing the Confessions, 
and nearly two decades after writing his earlier text, Augustine goes farther to write that the misericores, the merciful ones, ought to welcome miseria, ought to welcome misery and suffering in their love of neighbor. They work to alleviate the neighbor's burdens by bearing them. And by bearing one another's bur burdens, Christians form a community of mercy. The love that participates in the neighbor's burden is the love by which one begins to see God. And so misericordia for Augustine takes on a connotation interior as well as exterior. In his Epistle 82 to Jerome, written a year before this, we find intermixed various forms of misericordia and misericordia, various forms of wretched heartedness and mercy. But we also find the verb compatior, to suffer with, from which we derive the English word compassionate. Pure-hearted mercy, Augustine writes to Jerome, bears the neighbor's burdens not only exteriorly, but also interiorly, bearing those burdens as one's own. Now for Augustine, to compassionate the neighbor is not to feel pain at another's suffering. It's not to be sorry for someone. Nor is it simply to mirror the feelings of one another, to be sorry as someone else is sorry. Rather, one feels the pain or gladness that another feels because one has stepped into their shoes and from within that stance reacts to the world and to experience from the other's perspective. Compassionate mercy shares in another's affective experience because it shares in another one's cognition of the world. By compassionating, Augustine has come to believe, one loves one's neighbor as oneself. Still, this co-suffering fellowship in another's ills is always with a view to alleviating them. And so the other person's, the sufferer's experience of the world must not define the interior horizon in which the compassionate one evaluates them. Augustine points to St. Paul, the apostle. He says Paul became a Jew among the Jews, as he says in 1 Corinthians, in order to free them for Christ. He practiced Jewish sacraments to express to them his understanding of their desire to be cleansed of their sins and saved. Paul sees beyond to the final source of salvation in Christ, but by his intimate understanding through his misericordia and compassion, Paul, and the Christian that imitates him, is able to help the other as he would have wanted the other to help him. And so, like the Samaritan crossing the road, one imitates the incarnation by compassion, by which God mercifully and compassionately came to us in a manner suited to us to show us something beyond us. Thus is compassion rooted in the imitation of God's love toward the world, the misericordia flowing from his goodness, by which he bore our burdens to gather us into his life. Christian charity likens the Christian to the life of God, but the merciful compassion through which that charity is exercised is not so clearly rooted. Augustine leaves implicitly unresolved the question of whether a life of compassion is imitative only of, God's of only of God's action in the incarnation, or whether it also builds us into the image of God's divine life within himself. 
And thus, Augustine leaves implicitly unresolved whether the practice of compassion, so necessary as he says it to be, is compatible or not with the earthly reception of the vision of God. To the third point, Gregory on compassion's likeness to the Trinitarian life. So we have followed compassion in Augustine through a few stages. We've seen first compassion as something useful for understanding and interacting with the neighbor. Then we have seen compassion as an imitation of God's love toward the world by which he became incarnate and bore our burdens interiorly. But it is Gregory who gives us a sense of compassion as imitating also God's eternal life in himself, so that to practice compassion is to be likened to the life of the Trinity. If Augustine made compati, then, an act in aid of a more general misericordia, it is Gregory who elevates compassion to a principle or a general rule as the form that love must take among human beings. Recall that the bishop's compassion is the downward counterpart to his upward surge in contemplation. Now we can confront Gregory's relationship to Augustine in order to understand why Gregory has universal contemplative aspirations. That is, by considering how Gregory's compassio develops Augustine's misericordia, we can posit the theological why and how of his confidence in the possibility of contemplative vision for those in worldly life. To begin with, recall that Augustine and Cassian alike seek love's purity, and that purity of love means love's likeness to God's love. Gregory derives his characterization of godlike love not simply from the fact of the incarnation, as Augustine did, but especially from the love that Christ showed in his crucifixion. Recall that the shepherd manifests the form of his goodness in laying down his life. For Gregory, this goodness is not just in God's intention to die so that we might enter into his divine life, an Augustinian reading, but it is also, and here Gregory goes beyond Augustine, specifically in the human knowledge that Christ gains by his cruciform participation in universal human suffering. Gregory writes, quote, he would have loved us too little, except he took upon himself our wounds as well. For he found us subject to suffering and mortal beings. And to show how great the virtue of compassion is, he deigned to become in our behalf what he would not have us be. That in his own person, temporally, he might take upon himself death, so that he might banish death from us evermore. This goodwill surpasses that of one who gives aid only by outward action." End quote. By Christ's love on the cross, we learn compassion to be the very essence of godlike love. Quote, true compassion is to join out of generosity in the suffering of one's neighbor, Christ decided to aid us by dying because he would not have exhibited to us the force of his love unless he himself underwent that which he was to take away from us, end quote. To be clear, when Gregory speaks of Christ humanly exhibiting the force of his love by compassion, 
This does not mean that he attributes suffering to the divine essence. Why then does Gregory go farther than Augustine? Why does he make this willing knowledge of the neighbor's experience essential to that in which Christ's human love translates his divine love? I propose this answer. For Gregory, compassion is not merely the outcome of a love by which one imitates God's mercy toward the world, the love for creatures that flows from his divine goodness. Rather, compassion is the love by which human beings imitate God's love within himself, the love specifically that binds the Father and the Son. Compassion is not the divine economy as humanly lived. Compassion is the divine life as humanly lived. Compassion is not just an imitation of God's incarnate life, it is an imitation of his divine life. It imitates not only his essential goodness, but also the Son's eternal divine knowledge and love of the Father, that is, the imminent life of the Trinity into which one is to be drawn. For Gregory, the compassionate love of Christ's death echoes the Trinitarian embrace. Quote, The Lord immediately adds here, Just as the Father has known me, and I recognize the Father and lay down my life for my sheep. As if to say openly, in this it is certain that I know the Father and am known by him. I lay down my life for my sheep. That is, by the charity by which I die on behalf of the sheep, I show how much I love the Father. End quote. This knowledge and love of the Father, of which Gregory speaks, is not merely Christ's human knowledge and love of the Father. It is his divine knowledge and love of the Father as well. So the, so the Son's human love unto death translates both God's essential goodness, the goodness of the Good Shepherd, and the mutual love and knowledge that are the life of Father and Son in the unity of that essence. All of Christ's acts toward the world, both divine and human, can be called compassionate, insofar as they echo the inner embrace of the Trinity. But why is this? How can the Father and Son be called compassionate in their passionless and simple love? Consider how Gregory describes the compassion shown by Christ. Quote, he gives perfectly together, he gives perfectly who, together with what he offers externally to the afflicted, also takes into himself the mind of the afflicted, so that he should first transfer the suffering of the suffering person into himself, and only then meet that sorrow by an outward act of service. End quote. The core of compassion, then, is a free cognitive and affective assimilation of oneself to one's neighbor and of one's neighbor to oneself. As Gregory writes elsewhere, Paul takes each one into himself and transforms himself into each one by compassionating with them so that he may remodel another in himself and take account of himself in another, end quote. Now, if we strip away all notions of change and all the notions of suffering that we associate with the human experience of compassion, we can locate the core of compassion a total self-gift to the other through the utter reception of the other's mind into oneself. 
In this gift, one receives an intimate knowledge of one's neighbor, a communion beyond any other. This, then, is how Christ's compassionate death perfects the self-gift of the love of neighbor by taking the mind of another into himself. This is how that same human love translates the mutual knowledge and love of the Father and Son. This is why Christ's death shows both the force of divine love for humanity and shows how much I love the Father, as Christ says. Lending further support to this interpretation, in a passage on the crucifixion, Gregory likens Christ's human compassion to the divine embrace of Father and Son. As the Father is the Son's co-knower, his conscius in Latin, according to his divinity, so the Son, precisely in the suffering of the cross, becomes the conscius, the co-knower of humanity. First, of the Father and Son's communion, Gregory writes, it is with one will and one counsel. The Father acts always in union with the Son. And the Son is the Father's witness in that no one knows the Son, but I'm sorry, the Father is the Son's witness in that no one knows the Son but the Father. Thus then Christ had a witness in heaven and his co-knower on high, even when they who saw him dying in the flesh had their eyes closed against seeing the power of his divinity. Of the Son's relationship to all humanity by his human compassion, Gregory similarly writes, He is also rightly called the co-knower of humanity, in that he has been acquainted with our nature, not only by creating it, but also by taking it up. For his knowing is his having taken up what is ours. Whence, too, it is said by the psalmist, For he knows our frame. For what wonder is it? if he is said specifically to know our frame, when it is certain that there is nothing that he does not know. But his knowing our frame is his having taken it upon himself from loving kindness." End quote. Christ's compassion, then, translates into the world of distinct creaturely humans the transcendent and simple intimacy of father and son, who together possessing the same single divine intellect and will, eternally give themselves over to one another in knowledge and love in the unity of the Holy Spirit. If compassion expresses something essential to the love that is given to humans by the Holy Spirit, then else, what else could it be but a human likeness of the inner mutual knowledge and love of Father and Son in the single divine mind and the single divine essence? To conclude, now we can see how Gregory can be an Augustinian and yet be separated from Augustine by his affirmation of contemplative vision as a regular feature of Christian life in the busy world. In his treatise on the Trinity, Augustine asserts the common Christian belief that God's actions in time reveal to us his own imminent life. Extending this principle, Gregory has received Augustine's notion of compassionate mercy, but he has followed it further back into the life of God than Augustine did, finding in it not only a human translation of the essential goodness from which God loves creatures, but also a human translation of the mysterious Trinitarian life. This allows Gregory to keep John Cashin's definition of the basis for vision, that is, likeness to the unity of father and son, even while intensifying 
Augustine's description of how, of how a godlike love is to be lived in merciful compassion. Thus, while Augustine looked forward to regular vision only beyond the horizon of death, and Cassian looked forward to it only in the desert retreat, Gregory can confidently assert, quote, each soul will be so high in the knowledge of God as it is broad in the love of neighbor. For while it spreads itself out through love, it exalts itself above by knowledge. So let us be spread in charity's affection that we may be exalted in the glory of highness. Through love, let us have compassion on our neighbor so that we may be joined together by the knowledge of God. Let us stoop to the least of our brethren on earth and let us be made to the equal of the angels in heaven. This principle is illustrated by Gregory's own account of the life of St. Benedict. When Benedict's sister wished to converse with him through the night, Benedict insisted upon returning to his monastery, but his rigid fidelity to his own rule was forestalled by a miraculous thunderstorm that his sister was able to procure because, Gregory writes, she loved more. A chapter later, Benedict, who seems to have learned something, prolongs an evening in loving discourse with a visiting abbot, and after this, receives his great contemplative vision. Breadth in compassion has brought him to height in knowledge. And it's, it's interesting, Gregory actually alters the course of historical events so that he can place the contemplative vision after the uh, episode with, uh, with Benedict's sister. In, uh, as best we can tell historically, Benedict's great vision actually happened some years before the, uh, the conversation with his sister. But Gregory reverses them to make a point. Gregory, who in his book of Pat, so we, we have to assume that Benedict learned compassion earlier than, than Gregory depicts it. Gregory, who in his book of Pastoral Rule counseled all leaders to do likewise, wrote to his fellow bishop Dominic of Carthage that the pattern of heavenly praise is displayed on earth through our compassion. The practice of compassion is the earthly practice of heavenly life. And of the whole church, Gregory taught, there is no station among the faithful from which the grace of contemplation can be excluded, end quote. Gregory's theological achievement, his creative renegotiation of clashing traditions in light of the cross, both answered his own aspirations and gave his turbulent age a needed account of worldly affairs as spiritual affairs. For there are not two Christian lives, but one. Herein, one imitates Christ on the mountain and in the city, not finally in some unresolvable dialectical tension, but in a difficult yet ultimately harmonious embrace of compassion as an imitation of the cross, of the incarnation, and most importantly, the unity of the Father and Son. Thank you. Gregory's particular contribution shaped 
approach in such a way the way that they sort about those two uh, ways of looking at the issue. Yeah, that's an excellent question. And it's actually kind of murky in part because the development of monasticism uh, within um, Western and Northern Europe uh, takes a, a roundabout path due to uh, invasions by Aryan, uh, not, not Nazi Aryan, but Aryan that follow the teaching of Arius, uh, Germanic tribes uh, during the sixth and seventh centuries. So the kind of cartoon version is that for a while, uh, Orthodox Christian, Catholic Christian monasticism is kind of wiped out in uh, France. Uh, it undergoes a sort of, it takes a sojourn in Ireland and then through Irish missionaries, uh, it's reintroduced to the continent. And so you see a few things happen in the, in the, in the process of this. Um, somewhat mysteriously, but I would argue not so mysteriously, uh, upon the distribution of Gregory's writings throughout France and uh, into what is now Germany, uh, you see a shift in the way the lives of the saints are told. Uh, previous to that, the general uh, trope for the life of the saint is that you have some sort of nobleman or a soldier or, uh, or a wealthy merchant who sets aside his life to enter monastic life. And the, the general narrative is about the rejection of what came before, uh, like uh, according to the, the sort of um, journey of the rich, rich young man, right? Go sell all you have, give the proceeds to the poor, and come follow me. So this rupture of life and entry into monastic life with Christ is the trope. Um, but then, starting in the early 7th century, as Gregory's writings come to be recopied and distributed, the narrative changes. And it's much more the narrative of, say, the apostles, who were fishers and then become fishers of men following Christ. Uh, there you have um, tales of various princes and governors uh, who uh, heed the call to Christ and then become governors of the church as bishops. Uh, and the virtue that, and the care for others that they exercised in their previous position of authority is now brought to its fulfillment uh, by their care for others through Christ. Um, so, so that's the kind of optimistic narrative of Gregorian influence on the way uh, sanctity is construed. In later, in the high Middle Ages, it's a far, it's a, it's a far more diverse uh, conversation in which, uh, in some cases, monasticism is really considered not where active and contemplative living, as we have in Gregory's day, it's sort of, there's one Christian life, but there are contemplative moments and active moments. Uh, comes eventually to be distinguished as an active life, meaning life in the world, or a contemplative life, meaning life in the monastery. But this is problematized even as this distinction begins to arise because you have teachers like Aquinas who draw on, he cites Gregory the Great extensively, and then uh, other later writers such as Francis de Sales, also citing Gregory, Gregory the Great, who depict uh, the Christian life not as a choice between so-called states of life, but as a uh, as a as, as having these, these two dimensions, this active dimension and this contemplative dimension that can be practiced within the context of one Christian life. So the theorization of the contemplative life as the claustral life or the monastic life is something that arises later and really is, is never entirely dominant within the, um, within the Western Christian tradition. That was a great question. Thank you. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Wells. I was just wondering, um, you said that perfect love for your neighbor is not inherently necessary in, in human nature. Um, how is that, I guess, reconciled with like, the beginning of Genesis, creation of Eve and like, commandments to perform multiply kind of creating like, a family community before the fall? Okay, so I think, are you referring to like what the teaching of, of Cashin when he says, were we thinking about? Yeah, sorry. Okay, yeah, so when Cashin, Cashin thinks that perfect love is necessary, but he thinks, he thinks that our interaction with the neighbor, like why do we have to interact with our neighbors? Once you've gone out into the desert, why is someone knocking at your door at all? Because they need your help. And of course you must give your help because that's the loving thing to do, but that's going to disrupt your journey into the simple perfect love uh, that's prerequisite to contemplation. And he says, well, why do people need help? They need help because of the fall. So in Cashin's view, the fall has I don't want to go so far as to say that Cashin believes that human community is a product of the fall. He, he doesn't believe that. But the, I suppose for Cashin, the natural schooling in love that happens within human community would ultimately give way to a kind of repose. If, if the world were unfallen, and here I'm really just inferring from Cashin's teaching, he doesn't say this, but if the world were unfallen, it would be possible to live in human community without disturbance, without division of one's affections, without division of one's mind. People would just be quieter. Uh, they wouldn't have clashing wills. And we, we pretty much like eat, sleep, and pray uh, after having passed through the more uh, rambunctious schooling appropriate to children and youths. Uh, and so for Cash in the journey into the desert is kind of the natural fulfillment of a human life. Uh, but the reason why it's impossible to stay out in the desert is because the only way to stay in the desert is to ignore the people who need your help, but they need your help because of the fall. And so there's kind of a paradox, which I suppose Cashin is comfortable with because we live in a fallen, imperfect world. Uh, and, and so he's, he says most people just are going to fall short of contemplative vision, but God's not going to hold it against them because that's the kind of world we live in. The strangeness of Gregory is that Gregory really wants to have his cake and eat it too. He wants to, he wants to see God even, be, even with a life in the busy world. And that's something that neither Cashin nor Augustine can quite see a way to. Um, everybody believed that sanctity in the world was possible. Everybody believed that Christ has shown us how to live. But what Gregory develops is Gregory develops a theological account of how these things fit together in the soul of how how it's possible to have it all which doesn't make it easy but just makes it possible one doesn't have to choose ultimately between the desert and the city although gregory even at the end of his life still would have preferred the desert <laughs> he really doesn't enjoy being torn in so many directions at once in this i can really sympathize with him sometimes <laughs> but at the same time as a as a uh, husband and father I find Gregory really reassuring and, and just a wonderful, humbling reminder. Uh, every time I get very excited about my studies and thinking about something and feeling like I'm touching the hem of wisdom, Gregory is, is there to tell me that, you know, the, 
the stupid fight happening downstairs in the basement between the two kids actually really matters. Because there, if I come down not as a kind of avenging angel, but a compassionate mediator, avenging angel is the easier path to take. But if I come down as a compassionate uh, mediator, if I descend to the lowly needs of the neighbors in their suffering and feel the suffering of the kid whose Lego may or may not have been taken when he saw it and planned to take it before someone else picked it up or whatever, you know, if I can get into that and keep my head cool, I'm actually, I'm actually becoming quite wise indeed. That's what Gregory would say. And Cashin would say, you know, too bad, like most people, you had sex, and these are the consequences. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Rails. Uh, that was really beautiful. Yeah, I think it was beautiful. Um, I would seem to be in it because uh, it seems to validate the, the fact that you think like uh, something like the, the emotional experiencing what somebody else is experiencing. Um, but obviously, there's, there's some like uh, difficult metaphysical things going on there too, because uh, God doesn't really experience passion in the same right. sense. And so I was wondering if you could expand on um, the similarities and differences between, well, maybe not similarities and differences, but the relationship between compassion and communion, as we understand it, in the divine life and in the life of uh, God and the church, um, yeah. and other ways to information. So everything. Sure. <laughs> Well, when Gregory writes of the Incarnation, he says that in the Incarnation, um, God the Son came forth from his place. And uh, uh, his place is the unity of the Father and Son. And what is the character of that unity? Um, even in, in, the, in the paper, I was, I was sort of feeling uncomfortable with my own words. Because <clears throat> when we talk about the unity of Father and Son or the communion of Father and Son, we're not talking about two different minds. That, that kind of know one another really well. That would, be the e that would be the easy analogy. We could say, my compassion, my taking of my friend's mind or my kid's mind or my wife's mind into myself is an imitation of the way that the father takes in the son's mind and the son takes in the father's mind. And by knowing each other really well, that's how they're one God. That's, that's not the Trinitarian doctrine that, uh, that great, that's on offer today among theologians, but that's just not the Trinitarian doctrine that Gregory uh, or, or Aquinas or Augustine adhere to, um, or, or Cyril of Alexandria, the, the divine mind is one single mind. The father and the son are, can be considered like personal, even in sort of kind of modern personal sense, in that they, they have minds, right? But they have the same single mind. And so the distinction between father and son, and this is the important part, the distinction between the father and the son is not that they are distinct psychological subjects. The distinction between the Father and the Son is that the single divine mind of God exists by the act of eternal self-gift. And in this self-gift, as giver, there's Father, and Son, there's receiver. So the Father and the Son are almost two poles of the, of, the, of the single divine act of self-giving that is the act of eternal begetting. Uh, and <clears throat> so when we talk about, I'll skip the incarnation for a moment, and I'll just say that for us, when we talk about two human persons, two distinct psychological subjects imitating the unity of the father and the son, 
we're talking about a relationship. When we talk about the father and son, we're talking about a relation. And so we imitate the life of the Trinity by compassion because that's the closest we can come with our neighbor to actually having a single mind. Not just knowing one another's minds, but having a single mind. That's the closest we can come, and it's still pretty far away. We don't actually have a single mind, and one's deepest efforts at compassion can actually be mistaken. One might think one knows what the other from within, but actually be gravely mistaken. I've um, experienced this many times as a, as a father and as a husband. Like, ah, oh, yeah, I feel your pain. Wait, what, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> or, I feel your pain and it's not legitimate. <laughs> But uh, so when we, when we think of, when we make the transition from talking about earthly life to talking about the, the imminent eternal life of the Trinity, we have to think, we have to try to think beyond, like as Cashin says, we have to think beyond corporeality. We have to think beyond distinction. We have to think beyond even the way we exist. We exist for relationships, but God exists by relations. I can go off to the desert and read comic books for the rest of my life or stare at a coconut tree and, and come to believe that nobody else exists in the world except for me. And I'll still exist. It'll be a pretty deficient human existence. I will have sort of deactualized much of that which makes me godlike. And maybe in the end I'll become not a philosopher but a beast. But I'll still be around. But if the eternal begetting of self-gift by which God exists as Father and Son and Spirit, if that were to stop, then you wouldn't have the Father without a Son. You'd have nobody. You'd have nothing. God wouldn't exist. And so uh, we come to a closer imitation of that by which God exists when we enter into relationships. But however close a human relationship might come, two people coming together, you still don't even get an approximation of God. You get a kind of echo of the, of the eternal begetting. And this, to, to just add a like, final note, it, th this helps us to understand perhaps the, the force of, of when we re hear about Cyril of Alexandria, this participatory salvation. We don't imitate to perfection the eternal beginning between father and son, and now we're ready to see God, and so God comes and we can kind of latch on to him. All of this is happening within our participation as adopted sons, our, our share, our deepening share in the interior life of God. So our compassion for one another always has to be contextualized within the spiritual life of sharing in the life of God for it to have this kind of force of deepening our intimacy with God? Oh, good question. Thanks. Thank you for the talk. Uh, you mentioned with some of the different church fathers how their metaphysical starting points led to different descriptions of the So um, I have two questions for you. First of all, given that, you know, uh, compassion Aren't the same thing in human beings. Right. Um, is there what, what's kind of the relationship between those two principles? Is there like a subordinate relationship between compassion and contemplation, or do they 
that hold city police in some way. And then second of all, um, what would be kind of like a practical description for the daily life of someone like a student um, from the perspective of St. Gregory? Good, that, that's beautiful. Uh, for Gregory, in a certain sense, uh, compassion never ceases. So through compassion, one is broadened in love, one's love is likened to the inner life of the Trinity, one is participating more deeply in the life of the Trinity, and when one ascends the contemplative vision, I'm going to say this really quickly so Cody Strecker will get to hear it before he leaves, when one reaches the contemplative vision, one is nonetheless still exercising this higher, wordless, imageless form of compassion for the entire body of Christ. Okay, Cody can go now. And so in that sense, compassion never stops. And when he describes when he describes the contemplative at the peak of divine vision, even in seeing God, the neighbor, it, it's almost like the, the contemplative becomes an image of the whole church. The neighbor, through our love for neighbors, intensified by the vision of God by this intuitive vision of God. And in that moment of seeing God simultaneously, one is gathering the whole church up in oneself in a kind of wordless prayer. And that's the highest compassion. And that compassion is not a particularly emotional or affective experience. Otherwise, you'll be pulled this way in that, and you will come down from the vision. But Gregory says when you, when you get to the vision, you have this kind of, it, it's almost like your love is able to embrace everybody simultaneously and to, and to know their sufferings and to pray for their sufferings. At the same time, you're saying, so what does it look like practically? At the same time, Gregory says, this is exhausting. And we're, both, we're beaten back by the light of God, he says, but also by the inflammation of our love, we are drawn, we are pulled back. And so this is where Gregory is a little like John Cashin, and I don't think in a bad way, I think in a good way. He says, by the expansion of our love, we're drawn back to the earth. And we're drawn back to the earth because people are still there. We can't, if, if compassion is the form of our, of our imitation of the heavenly choirs right now, the fact that everybody's not in the heavenly choirs means that if we actually exercise it, of course we're going to be drawn back down. But whereas John Cashin will say, when you come down, you're actually kind of degrading. The, the, it's like a beautiful crystal that was in you is being shattered again. Gregory will say that when you come down, you're not coming down and you're not kind of pulling the rope ladder down with you. Uh, you are actually retrenching, you're strengthening, you're deepening the foundation for a further rise. So there's a mutual intensification between compassion and contemplation in Gregory, rather than an antagonistic relationship. And so what would it look like practically? Like what, I've never seen God the way Gregory describes. Wish I had, but I haven't. Uh, and I can think of many reasons why I haven't. Uh, but uh, what would it look like practically? Well, there the kind of <coughs> rhythmic punctuation of the day by prayer. What does it look like? It, look, it, it looks like the simple things. Like, get up one minute earlier and spend a minute in silent prayer at the beginning of the day. When you walk past someone who looks troubled, stop and ask them what's wrong. And maybe you don't have time. I know what that feels like. You feel like at, at bedtime, like this is kind of, I feel this tension sometimes where I notice that this kid's steps are a little slower as he's going into his room. I've just been reading a novel to him or something. And I feel like I want to ask him what's wrong, but it's probably going to be a 30 minute conversation. I have to, great papers or something. But those are the moments when like that, that's why Cashin is saying, and that's why Augustine's saying, like it's hard to negotiate life, right? 
But those are the moments when, when an exercise of compassion, even if you have to say, this is very important to me, let's get lunch next week, right? Or let's get lunch tomorrow or something, because I'm going to class now. But those are the moments when, uh, in the view of Gregory, those little kind of practical things that we might consider being nice to people or being a good guy, those, are, those actually have profound metaphysical and spiritual consequences like in terms of reshaping you and deepening your share in the divine life. So it, uh, uh, Gregory, is, Gregory is discovering uh, the extraordinary in the ordinary through his reflection on um, the incarnation of the cross as this echo in God's interventions in the world, this echo of the eternal embrace of the Father and Son.